Hello, my friends. This is your Definitely Storytime host, Jamie. And if you're here, it's Definitely Storytime. So let's settle in and get comfortable, or whatever it is you prefer doing while you listen. And let's begin. We are reading Edgar Allan Poe's Part 3 The Murders in the Rue Morgue I am now awaiting, continued he, looking toward the door of our apartment, I am now awaiting a person who, although perhaps not the perpetrator of these butcheries, must have been in some measure implicated in their perpetration. Of the worst portion of the crimes committed, it is probable that he is innocent. I hope that I am right in this supposition, for upon it I build my expectation of reading the entire riddle. I look for the man here, in this room, every moment. It is true that he may not arrive, but the probability is that he will. Should he come, it will be necessary to detain him. There are pistols, and we both know how to use them when occasion demands their use. I took the pistols, scarcely knowing what I did, or believing what I heard, while Dupin went on, very much as if in a soliloquy. I have already spoken of his abstract manner at such times. His discourse was addressed to myself, but his voice, although by no means loud, had that intonation which is commonly employed in speaking to someone at a great distance. His eyes, vacant in expression, regarded only the wall. That the voices heard in contention, he said, by the party upon the stairs, were not the voices of the women themselves, was fully proved by the evidence. This relieves us of all doubt upon the question whether the old lady could have first destroyed the daughter and afterward have committed suicide. I speak of this point chiefly for the sake of method, for the strength of Madame L'Espagne would have been utterly unequal to the task of thrusting her daughter's corpse up the chimney as it was found, and the nature of the wounds upon her own person entirely precludes the idea of self-destruction. Murder, then, has been committed by some third party, and the voices of this third party were those heard in contention. Let me now advert, not to the whole testimony respecting these voices, but to what was peculiar in that testimony. Did your observe anything peculiar about it? I remarked that, while all the witnesses agreed in supposing the gruff voice to be that of a Frenchman, There was much disagreement in regard to the shrill, or as one individual termed it, the harsh voice. That was the evidence itself, said Dupin, but it was not the peculiarity of the evidence. You have observed nothing distinctive, yet there was something to be observed. The witnesses, as you remark, agreed about the gruff voice. They were here unanimous, but in regard to the shrill voice, the peculiarity is, not that they disagreed, but that while an Italian, an Englishman, a Spaniard, a Hollander, and a Frenchman attempted to describe it, 
Each one spoke of it as that of a foreigner. Each is sure that it was not the voice of one of his own countrymen. Each likens it not to the voice of an individual of any nation with whose language he is conversant, but the converse. The Frenchman supposes it the voice of a Spaniard, and might have distinguished some words had he been acquainted with the Spanish. The Dutchman maintains it to have been that of a Frenchman, but we find it stated that, not understanding French, this witness was examined through an interpreter. The Englishman thinks it was the voice of a German, and does not understand German. The Spaniard is sure that it was that of an Englishman, but judges by the intonation altogether, as he has no knowledge of the English. The Italian believes it the voice of a Russian, but has never conversed with a native of Russia. A second Frenchman differs moreover with the first, and is positive that the voice was that of an Italian, but, not being cognizant of that tongue, is, like the Spaniard, convinced by the intonation. Now, how strangely unusual must that voice have really been, about which such testimony as this could have been elicited, in whose tones even denizens of the five great divisions of Europe could recognize nothing familiar. You will say that it might have been the voice of an Asiatic, of an African. Neither Asiatics nor Africans abound in Paris, but without denying the inference, I will now merely call your attention to three points. The voice is termed by one witness, harsh rather than shrill. It is represented by two others to have been quick and unequal. No words, no sounds resembling words, were by any witnesses mentioned as distinguishable. I know not, continued Dupin, what impression I may have made so far upon your own understanding. But I do not hesitate to say that legitimate deductions, even from this portion of the testimony, the portion respecting the gruff and shrill voices, are in themselves sufficient to engender a suspicion which should give direction to all further progress in the investigation of the mystery. I said legitimate deductions, but my meaning was not thus fully expressed. I designed to imply that the deductions are the sole proper ones, and that the suspicion arises inevitably from them as the single result. What the suspicion is, however, I will not say just yet. I merely wish you to bear in mind that, with myself, it was sufficiently forcible to give a definite form, a certain tendency, to my inquiries in the chamber. Let us now transport ourselves in fancy to this chamber. What shall we first seek here? The means of egress employed by the murderers. It is not too much to say that neither of us believe in preternatural events, Madame Aunt. Mademoiselle L'Espagne were not destroyed by spirits. The doers of the deed were material, and escaped materially. Then how? Fortunately, there is but one mode of reasoning upon the point, and that mode must lead us to a definite decision. Let us examine, each by each, the possible means of egress. It is clear 
that the assassins were in the room where Mademoiselle Espanier was found, or at least in the room adjoining, when the party ascended the stairs. It is then only from these two apartments that we have to seek issues. The police have laid bare the floors, the ceiling, and the masonry of the walls in every direction. No secret issues could have escaped their vigilance. But, not trusting to their eyes, I examined with my own. There were then no secret issues. Both doors leading from the rooms into the passage were securely locked with the keys inside. Let us turn to the chimneys. These, although of ordinary width, for some eight or ten feet above the hearths, will not admit, throughout their extent, the body of a large cat. The impossibility of egress, by means already stated, being thus absolute, we are reduced to the windows. Through those of the front room, no one could have escaped without notice from the crowd in the street. The murderers must have passed, then, through those of the back room. Now brought to this conclusion in so unequivocal a matter as we are, it is not our part, as reasoners, to reject it on account of apparent impossibilities. It is only left for us to prove that these apparent impossibilities are in reality not such. There are two windows in the chamber. One of them is unobstructed by furniture and is wholly visible. The lower portion of the other is hidden from view by the head of the unwieldy bedstead which is thrust close up against it. The former was found securely fastened from within. It resisted the utmost force of those who endeavored to raise it. A large gimlet hole had been pierced in its frame to the left, and a very stout nail was found fitted therein, nearly to the head. Upon examining the other window, a similar nail was seen similarly fitted in, and a vigorous attempt to raise this sash failed also. The police were now entirely satisfied that egress had not been in these directions, and, therefore, it was thought a matter of supererogation to withdraw the nails and open the windows. My own examination was somewhat more particular, and was so for the reason I have just given, because here it was I knew that all apparent impossibilities must be proved to be not such in reality. I proceeded to think thus, a posteriori. The murderers did escape from one of these windows. This being so, they could not have refastened the sashes from the inside as they were found fastened. The consideration which put a stop, through its obviousness, to the scrutiny of the police in this quarter. Yet the sashes were fastened. They must then have the power of fastening themselves. There was no escape from this conclusion. I stepped to the unobstructed casement, withdrew the nail with some difficulty, and attempted to raise the sash. It resisted all my efforts, as I had anticipated. A concealed spring must, I now knew, exist, and this corroboration of my idea convinced me that my premises, at least, were correct. However mysterious still appeared the circumstances attending the nails. A careful search soon brought to light the hidden spring. I pressed it, and satisfied with the discovery, forbore to upraise the sash. 
I now replaced the nail and regarded it attentively. A person passing out through this window might have reclosed it, and the spring would have caught, but the nail could not have been replaced. The conclusion was plain, and again narrowed in the field of my investigations. The assassins must have escaped through the other window. Supposing, then, the springs upon each sash to be the same, as was probable, there must be found a difference between the nails, or at least between the modes of their fixture. Getting upon the sacking of the bedstead, I looked over the headboard minutely at the second casement. Passing my hand down behind the board I readily discovered, and pressed the spring, which was, as I had supposed, identical in character with its neighbor. I now looked at the nail. It was as stout as the other, and apparently fitted in the same manner, driven in nearly up to the head. You will say that I was puzzled, but, if you think so, you must have misunderstood the nature of the inductions. To use a sporting phrase, I had not been once at fault. The scent had never for an instant been lost. There was no flaw in any link of the chain. I had traced the secret to its ultimate result, and that result was the nail. It had, I say, in every respect the appearance of its fellow in the other window, but this fact was an absolute nullity, conclusive as it might seem to be, when compared with the consideration that here, at this point, terminated the clue. There must be something wrong, I said, about the nail. I touched it, and the head with about a quarter of an inch of the shank, came off in my fingers. The rest of the shank was in the gimlet hole, where it had been broken off. The fracture was an old one, for its edges were encrusted with rust and had apparently been accomplished by the blow of a hammer, which had partially embedded in the top of the bottom sash the head portion of the nail. I now carefully replaced this head portion in the indentation whence I had taken it, and the resemblance to a perfect nail was complete. The fissure was invisible. Pressing the spring, I gently raised the sash for a few inches. The head went up with it, remaining firm in its bed. I closed the window, and the semblance of the old nail was again perfect. This riddle so far was now unriddled. The assassin had escaped through the window which looked upon the bed. Dropping of its own accord upon its exit, or perhaps purposely closed, it had become fastened by the spring, and it was the retention of the spring which had been mistaken by the police for that of the nail. Further inquiry being thus considered unnecessary. The next question is that of the mode of descent. Upon this point I had been satisfied in my walk with you around the building, about five feet and a half from the casement in question there runs a lightning rod. From this rod it would have been impossible for anyone to reach the window itself to say nothing of entering it. I observed, however, that the shutters of the fourth story were of the peculiar kind called by Parisian carpenters ferrat. In the line of their breadth, as they must have done, they did not perceive this great breadth itself, or at all events, failed to take it into due consideration. In fact, having once satisfied themselves that no egress could have been made in this quarter, they would naturally bestow here a very cursory examination. It was clear to me, however, 
that the shutter belonging to the window at the head of the bed would, if swung fully back to the wall, reach to within two feet of the lightning rod. It was also evident that, by exertion of a very unusual degree of activity and courage, an entrance into the window from the rod might have been thus effected. By reaching to the distance of two feet and a half, we now suppose the shutter open to its whole extent, a robber might have taken a firm grasp upon the trellis work, letting go, then, his hold upon the rod, placing his feet securely against the wall and springing boldly from it, he might have swung the shutter so as to close it, and, if we imagine the window open at the time, might even have swung himself into the room. I wish you to bear especially in mind that I have spoken of a very unusual degree of activity as requisite to success in so hazardous and so difficult a feat. It is my design to show you first that the thing might possibly have been accomplished, but secondly and chiefly, I wish to impress upon your understanding the very extraordinary, the almost preternatural character of that agility which could have accomplished it. You will say, no doubt, using the language of the law, that, to make out my case, I should rather undervalue than insist upon a full estimation of the activity required in this matter. This may be the practice in law, but it is not the usage of reason. My ultimate object is only the truth. My immediate purpose is to lead you to a place of juxtaposition. That very unusual activity of which I have just spoken— with that very peculiar, shrill or harsh, and unequal voice about whose nationality no two persons could be found to agree, and in whose utterance no syllabification could be detected. At these words a vague and half-formed conception of the meaning of Dupin flitted over my mind. I seemed to be upon the verge of comprehension— without power to comprehend, as men at times find themselves, upon the brink of remembrance, without being able, in the end, to remember. My friend went on with his discourse. "'You will see,' he said, "'that I have shifted the question from the mode of egress to that of ingress. It was my design to convey the idea that both were affected in the same manner, at the same point.' Let us now revert to the interior of the room. Let us survey the appearances here. The drawers of the bureau, it is said, had been rifled, although many articles of apparel still remained within them. The conclusion here is absurd. It is a mere guess, a very silly one, and no more. How are we to know that the articles found in the drawers were not all these drawers had originally contained? Madame L'Espagnier and her daughter lived an exceedingly retired life, saw no company, seldom went out, had little use for numerous changes of habiliment. Those found were at least of as good quality as any likely to be possessed by these ladies. If a thief had taken any, why did he not take the best? Why did he not take all? In a word, why did he abandon four thousand francs in gold to encumber himself with a bundle of linen? The gold was abandoned. Nearly the whole sum mentioned by Monsieur Mignaud, the banker, was discovered, in bags, upon the floor. I wish you, therefore, to disregard from your thoughts the blundering idea of motive engendered in the brains of the police by that portion of the evidence which speaks of money delivered at the door of the house. 
coincidences ten times as remarkable as this, the delivery of the money and murder committed within three days upon the party receiving it, happen to all of us every hour of our lives without attracting even momentary notice. Coincidences in general are great stumbling blocks in the way of that class of thinkers who have been educated to know nothing of the theory of probabilities, that theory to which the most glorious objects of human research are indebted for the most glorious of illustration. In the present instance, had the gold been gone, the fact of its delivery three days before would have formed something more than a coincidence. It would have been corroborative of this idea of motive, but under the real circumstances of the case, if we are to suppose gold the motive of this outrage, we must also imagine the perpetrator so vacillating an idiot as to have abandoned his gold and his motive together. Keeping now steadily in mind the points to which I have drawn your attention, that peculiar voice, that unusual agility, and that startling absence of motive in a murder so singularly atrocious as this, let us glance at the butchery itself. Here is a woman strangled to death by manual strength and thrust up a chimney head downward. Ordinary assassins employ no such mode of murder as this. Least of all do they thus dispose of the murdered. In the manner of thrusting the corpse up the chimney, you will admit that there was something excessively outré, something altogether irreconcilable with our common notions of human action, even when we suppose the actors the most depraved of men. Think, too, how great must have been that strength which could have thrust the body up such an aperture so forcibly that the united vigor of several persons was found barely sufficient to drag it down. Turn now to other indications of the employment of a vigor most marvelous. On the hearth were thick tresses, very thick tresses of gray human hair, these had been torn out by the roots. You are aware of the great force necessary in tearing thus from the head even twenty or thirty hairs together. You saw the locks in question as well as myself. Their roots, a hideous sight, were clotted with fragments of the flesh of the scalp, sure token of the prodigious power which had been exerted in uprooting perhaps half a million of hairs at a time. The throat of the old lady was not merely cut, but the head absolutely severed from the body. The instrument was a mere razor. I wish you also to look at the brutal ferocity of these deeds. Of the bruises upon the body of Madame L'Espagnier, I do not speak. Monsieur Dumas and his worthy coadjutor, Monsieur Etienne, have pronounced that they were inflicted by some obtuse instrument, and so far these gentlemen are very correct. The obtuse instrument was clearly the stone pavement in the yard upon which the victim had fallen from the window, which looked in upon the bed. This idea, however simple it may now seem, escaped the police for the same reason that the breadth of the shutters escaped them, because, by the affair of the nails, their perceptions had been hermetically sealed against the possibility of the windows having ever been opened at all. If now, in addition to these things, you have properly reflected upon the odd disorder of the chamber, we have gone so far as to combine the ideas of an agility astounding, a strength superhuman, a ferocity brutal, 
a butchery without motive, a grotesquerie and horror absolutely alien from humanity, and a voice foreign in tone to the ears of men of many nations, and devoid of all distinct or intelligible syllabification. What result, then, has ensued? What impression have I made upon your fancy? And that has been our episode. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, I hope you'll consider telling your friends and family. And if you have the means, providing listener support. I also have a Patreon, and I have merchandise available on Teespring. Links are on the homepage. I thank you for choosing Definitely Storytime.